All right. Well, let's pray together and then we'll begin our Lord's Day. Thank you, Father, for uh, a beautiful day today, a day to gather together. It's cool outdoors. It's, it's a time for us to leave the cares of the world behind, Lord. And we pray, God, that um, today you would turn our hearts and our affections away from a world that is growing more and more wicked with every passing day and toward our heavenly home, toward our King, toward our Savior. Lord, it may be very soon that he returns and we pray for that. We, we join with the Apostle John in his final prayer of the Bible that you might come um, as soon as possible, to come quickly, Lord. And in the meantime, Lord, I pray that we as a church body would be faithful to you, that we would walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, that we would proclaim the gospel to any who would hear, that we would love one another, that we would cherish the church, that we would be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another, that we would be a unified body, that we would be a body of believers that longs for you and longs for your word and is hungry for truth. And we just can't get enough, Lord, that, that while we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we would be filled. And at the same time, we would be like the one who, who pants for you, Lord, who uh, longs for you. I pray that's our heart this day, Lord, this Lord's day. May we be filled up to overflowing with the word of God and thrilled in our souls as a result. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Well, um, we ended off last time in this uh, Module 6, Session 3. We didn't get very far, and that's fine. We now are at the overview of the rapture. And this is a very, this is a very simplistic uh, explanation of the rapture, just kind of an overview here. Um, I, feel like we, I feel like we started this, but we'll just go through it fairly quickly. Um, first of all, the term rapture, again, is not found in the Bible, uh, theoretically speaking, but it is found in the Bible. The reason people say it's not found in the Bible is because it's a translation of a translation. Um, rapture is the English translation of the Latin translation of the Greek. Um, or harpazo, which just means to be caught up. We have three primary texts for the rapture. However, um, these are not uh, merely uh, the only places where we can prove the rapture. They're, they're the most direct texts. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, the end of the chapter, and then John 14, 3. I gave you last time, I believe, examples of rapture in the Bible. Uh, Elijah, 2 Kings 2, um, and I don't have in here, but of course Enoch, um, who was caught up to be with God, Genesis 5, um, and then that's confirmed in the book of Jude as well. Then you have uh, Jesus, of course, um, Acts chapter 1, and, and people say sometimes, well, that's a different category. But he came to be like us. He came to the world like us, and he left the world like we will. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of neat. You have the two witnesses of Revelation 11. That's a future example. has not happened yet. And then I think that's about where we left off. Um, the components of the rapture, what does this look like? Well, we uh, said last time this is sort of the partial return of Christ for the Lord himself will descend with a, from heaven with a shout. First Thessalonians 4.16, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. John 14.3. And I now I remember we talked about this last time that 
that um, we have theological categories, and sometimes if the Bible doesn't fit into our categories, then we get nervous about that. And a typical argument against the rapture is, are you saying that, um, that Christ came, is coming back twice? No, we're saying Christ is coming back one and a half times. Um, we're going to get even crazier. Because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that we will meet him in the air. John 14, 3 says he will take us to be where he is. Um, and, and that is not speaking of Christian death. We said that last time. That has to be speaking of the rapture resurrection event. We have the resurrection of dead church saints. The dead in Christ shall rise first, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And the dead will be raised imperishable, 1 Corinthians 15.52. You have the translation of the living believers, meaning the, the change that happens to those who are alive. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. We have a, a glorious reunion, same verse, we shall meet the Lord in the air. We shall always be with the Lord. And that where I am, there you may be also. John 14, 3. You have the giving of glorified bodies. We shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And in Philippians 3, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. And then we talked about the speed of the rapture in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, I, I don't take that as that the event itself is instantaneous. I take that as that the event will begin and commence very quickly. But what we said last time is that every example of a rapture in Scripture was visible. It was, it was visible to those still there. So um, I, I think that would be reasonable to say that the Lord will stay um, with his pattern. Now we can talk about the timing of the rapture. And this is where people start throwing rocks and, and things. Um, uh, or, or worse, saying, well, I don't really care. It doesn't matter. It, it does matter. It makes a big difference because it really speaks to the character of God. But let's talk about the timing of the rapture in relation to the tribulation period. And, and the debate is basically whether or not the second coming of Christ is in stages and the uniqueness of Israel from the church. Those are the bigger issues that go along with this. Um, there are various views of the timing of the rapture. You have um, our amillennial and postmillennial brothers. They regard the coming of Christ as a single event followed by the general resurrection and judgment that, um, that basically everything kind of happens all at once. Uh, to draw a chart of amillennial and postmillennial theology uh, or eschatology is very easy. You have us here, everything at the end, and nothing in between. That's, that's it. And so it's very simple. Um, I would call it oversimplified. But within premillennialism, the belief that Christ will return and then set up the kingdom, there are five major views about the timing of the rapture. You have the pre-tribulational view. Pre-tribulationalism says that the rapture occurs before the seven-year tribulation. You have the mid-tribulation view. This is a less popular view. It's, it's hardest to, uh, to kind of hold up. At the midpoint of the tribulation. This is linked with Revelation eleven fifteen through 19. Um, and that's the main text that would supposedly prove this. But that, that's really about judgment. It's not about the rapture. You have pre-wrath rapture. 
The pre-wrath rapture view teaches that all Christians will be taken in the rapture about three-fourths of the way through the tribulation period. That gets really difficult to, um, to time out and to uh, defend. You have post-tribulational rapture. That the rapture and second coming are, are, are all part of a single event. It occurs during the tribulation period. And so what would happen then, according to the post-tribulational rapture view, is that the church will be on earth during the seven years of the tribulation period. We will be raptured, meet the Lord in the air, and come right back down. I, this is, I've named this Boeing theology, because we'll go up, Boeing, and back down. Um, the problem with that is that it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it, it doesn't, serve any theological purpose. It doesn't do anything. And then there's the partial rapture view originating in 1835 that only spiritual Christians who are watching and waiting for the Lord's return will be taken in the rapture. Then during the seven years of the tribulation, other church age saints who weren't prepared will be raptured at various intervals. There's no scriptural proof for that whatsoever, but believe it or not, over time it's gained some traction. Um, and by the way, how do, how the faulty theological views that are unprovable gain traction? It's when godly men keep quoting each other and they won't stop. Um, over and over again. And you can trace this if you see a certain view and you look at a bibliography and it has older sources, get a hold of an older source, look at its bibliography and work your way backwards. You can see sometimes, unfortunately, men just quote each other over and over again over a period of hundreds of years. And if enough men do it, then it comes off as truth. History is nice and it's helpful, but it is not the way we study the Bible. We study the Bible for what, for what it says uh, in and of itself. Now, I, I think a lot of people would say, you know, who cares? I'm trying to pay my bills this week and my marriage is not doing great. And I've got this issue and this and, and that. Why would I care about this? Well, the issue is it's important for three different reasons. First of all, um, we want to know the whole counsel of God, right? If the Bible addresses an issue, that automatically makes it more important. I've read men who will use phrases, and I don't think they mean anything bad by this, but they'll use phrases about certain things being more important in theology than other things. And I understand where they're coming from, but that also might say that we could stand in judgment as to which parts of Scripture are more important than others. Um, and that's, that's beginning to skate on some thin ice, and so I'm uncomfortable with that. So we want to know the whole counsel of God. If God taught this topic, then it's important to us because it was in His heart. It's also important because it deals with the nature of our hope and our expectation. Are, are we to expect Christ's return at any moment, or are we to expect to go through a time of great tribulation? And I know every generation of Christians, there's always a bunch of us who feel like, you know, things are pretty bad now. I feel like we're in the Great Tribulation. Um, if you are in the Great Tribulation, and you could look back with the benefit of history, you would look back and say, boy, wasn't 2022 easy? Wasn't that a great time to live? Um, it, it will be a time that is absolutely unprecedented in every way. Third reason it's important. It speaks to the consistency of how we study the Bible, the consistency of hermeneutics. I, this is really a good test case because 
if you say, well, I can't believe the rapture because uh, many of the reformers didn't believe it. Okay, you're off track because you're not say, looking at what Scripture says. If you say, I can't believe the rapture um, because of my theological viewpoint, then you're off track. You're not believing what Scripture says. So if you simply take at face value what the Bible says, and we already listed some of the facts that there are multiple examples in Scripture of people being caught up into heaven, um, if you take the three major passages that all perfectly harmonize and teach exactly the same thing using words and, and grammatical phrases that are undeniable, then you have a choice. Either I believe what the Bible says, I take it at face value, or I let a system or I let a previously held belief impact what I believe. Um, I have a pastor friend in town, and they do not believe in the rapture. So we've we've always said, look, when we're gone, you can use our facility and and everything, you know. Um, so uh, and we've even said we should have built, you know, you know, those who believe in the rapture go this way; those who don't go this way. And um, and so you know, I, I I expect that if any of us are in the rapture, which would be which would be great, you know, we'll have some surprised brothers uh, there. The, the Babylon Bee with the, the Presbyterian who doesn't believe in the rapture, you know, mad as he's going up, you know, that's like, <clears throat> so, uh, but it's important because God taught it. And if God taught it, then it must be important to us. So how do we defend a pre-tribulational view or a tribulational view, however you want to say that? Well, let's just start with... Um, Let's see, I think I missed one. Did I miss one? Oh, I didn't. Okay, I just have different numbers and I have my own notes. Okay, well, let's start off with just sort of a, a biblical defense of pre-tribulationalism. Um, there's no one verse that explicitly tells us the timing of the rapture, and I think very often when uh, when when people can't point to a specific verse, they say, see, the Bible doesn't teach this. That just betrays a shallow view of the Bible. We're, we're called to understand the Scripture at great depth. So the first part of the defense, God has promised the church deliverance from divine wrath. That is very clear from Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Revelation 3.10, 1 um, <clears throat> Thessalonians 1.10, that we wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The, uh, the context of that is the coming great tribulation, um, the day of the Lord, the judgment of God. And God made a special promise to the church that it will be delivered from the future tribulational wrath. And so the, the, the rescue from wrath of both First and Second Thessalonians speaks of the tribulation period. It doesn't speak of eternal wrath. It, we've already been delivered that in, from that in Christ, but we're delivered from the wrath that is coming to the earth. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, some would say, well, that's just talking about eternal wrath. That's not the context. Context, context, context. Um, one, one of my um, professors in college, in, in seminary rather, used to continually pound into us that a text without a context is a pretext, that you're making assumptions. The context of 1 Thessalonians 5.9 is the day of the Lord, the great tribulation, the time of judgment on the earth. You have the, the whole seven-year tribulation period as a time of God's divine wrath. So the protection must be the, for the whole seven years. 
Now, if you want to get into the, the nitty-gritty on the Great Tribulation, yes, the really, really bad stuff, like hailstones and, and Antichrist going crazy, begins at the three-and-a-half-year mark. But that doesn't mean bad stuff isn't happening. Uh, there's peace on earth for three and a half years because of Antichrist. Would we say, oh, well, that's a, that's a good thing? No, one world governments are never a good thing under sinners. It'll be a horrible time. Christians will be uh, oppressed. Um, you'll have the, the new tribulation saints coming to faith in Christ after the rapture and immediately beginning to pay with their lives. And you have um, Israel, uh, Daniel 9, uh, Antichrist makes a, a covenant with Israel for seven years, three and a half years in, the, he breaks covenant with them. And by the way, on a side note, somebody asked a week or two ago about a, a temple and sacrifices during the Great Tribulation. And Daniel 9 completely escaped my, um, my memory that Antichrist makes a a covenant with Israel and sacrifices begin. What does that mean? It means there must be a temple and the, the breaking of the covenant is when uh, the sacrifices are now brought to an end. The Antichrist says, you will worship me. And he sets up his own image in, in the temple. So that, so yes, there will be a temple in the millennial time, um, but it'll be again uh, an apostate Judaism that is not uh, grounded in faith in Christ. Then you have Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. There are some differences between... This is the second part of our proof here, our defense. Differences between the rapture passages and second coming passages. And they point to two different events at two different times. Now, don't get scared by this. Um, it's a little bit massive. But this is mostly, you can either download this or you can try to write fast. But this is just for your, um, just kind of for comparison. You have the central rapture passages that I list up there. John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. You have the central second coming of Christ passages. Zechariah 14, uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, Revelation 19. And so there's a, there's a bunch of differences here. First of all, the second coming is preceded by signs, by things to watch for. The rapture has no signs. There, there's nothing to look for beforehand. You have another difference. The rapture in Christ is Christ coming in blessing to bless those who are his. The second coming is Christ coming in judgment. They're very, very different in tone. The rapture passages make no mention of a context of setting up a kingdom. There's none of that. There, there's no, uh, it's time to set up the kingdom. The second coming passages immediately are followed by now judgment comes and now the setting up of the kingdom and the sheep and the goats and the, the parable of the ten virgins and so forth. You have glorified bodies at the rapture while the second coming makes no mention of glorified bodies at that moment. Why? Because that's already done. It's already been accomplished. There's no mention of meeting in the air in the second coming passages. The second coming passages, Christ comes all the way to the earth. There are two differences, timing differences of two resurrections. And remember that amillennialism and postmillennialism holds to one big general resurrection. But premillennialism, we hold to a resurrection of the church age saints, 1 Thessalonians 4, and a resurrection of the tribulation martyrs at a later time. 
1 Thessalonians 4.13, the resurrection of church-age saints happens during the descent of Christ in the rapture. We meet in the air. The resurrection of others, Revelation 19 and 20, clearly happens after Christ is on the earth. So those are, those are major differences. You have differences in destinations. John 14.3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am going, you may be also. And what did he call it? My Father's house. Raptured saints are going to heaven. Revelation 19, the second coming, saints are headed to the earth. Those who are in white robes, uh, white linen, fine and clean. How about the role of the angels in the coming? At the rapture, Jesus is the direct agent of the gathering of the saints. At the second coming, the angels gather the elect, uh, Matthew twenty four thirty one, from the four corners of the earth. Those are living tribulation saints. Now, I, almost every time I've ever heard Matthew twenty four thirty one preached, it's always misaligned with the rapture. Matthew twenty four thirty one is where Jesus said that, that when he comes, his angels will gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. That is not the rapture. That is the gathering of living saints altogether. What, what for? Well, because that's what Christ promised he would do. He would gather all his people. You have the mystery status of the of the rapture. Paul speaks of the rapture as a mystery in First Thessalonians, First Corinthians fifteen. Rather, it's a, it's a. What does this mean? It means it was a truth that wasn't revealed until the apostles. You cannot build a theology of the rapture solely on the Old Testament because it was a, it was a mystery. It's a newly revealed mystery. The second coming, though, every third page in the Old Testament is about the second coming of Messiah. And so the Old Testament is clear about the second coming, not about the rapture. You have no mention of the church in Revelation 4 through 18. Revelation 4 through 18 is the most detailed account in our entire Bible of the tribulation period. You would expect maybe one reference to the church, which is referred to 19 times before Revelation 4. Just one. But there isn't one. And suddenly the church isn't mentioned at all. So that's just a that that is just a a short list. Um, when we preach through our Millennium series, um, I'm going to share a list with you from one of my favorite theologians uh, from yesteryear, and he gives 50 reasons for a pre-tribulational rapture. And by the time you get done, you're like, I give up. There's there's no way this can't be true. So um, so that's just a, a basic defense. And let's see here. <clears throat> Is that the same thing? Okay. Divine wrath. It is. Okay. That's right. So let me move on to this because I already, I already talked about this. Um, why is this not matching my notes? This only happens when I'm in front of a whole bunch of people. It never happens when I'm by myself. I, I don't know why that is. Go <laughs> back. Right there? All right. Okay, thank you. This is why I did this two and a half years ago, it was the last time. Okay, eventually we will, uh, we will, we will get lined up here. Uh, Pre tribulationalism, it best explains the presence of 
Is that the, yep, there it is, number three. It best explains the presence of non-glorified saints. There is no other system of belief that they can explain non-glorified saints in a millennial kingdom. Why, why is this easy for us? Because they're survivors of the Great Tribulation and they're descendants of survivors of the Great Tribulation. Living unbelievers are removed from the earth. Sheep and goat judgment. The Bible also teaches that children will be born during the millennium and they will be capable of sin. Isaiah 65, uh, verse 20, Revelation 27 and 10. Pre-tribulational view also allows for people to be saved after the rapture and during the tribulation who will enter into the millennium in non-glorified bodies. And so uh, there, there is um, a, a great response to the gospel that will continue to happen. Um, the, the great tribulation, in my mind, and we talked about this last time, will be an even greater time of gospel um, success than even in the church age. Um, very, very often, again, when Jesus taught in Matthew 24 and 25 that his return um, will be will not happen until every tribe, tongue and nation has heard the gospel. That is so often misapplied to the church age. That's talking about the great tribulation time that every tribe and tongue and nation will hear the gospel. Then he'll return. What does that tell us about the rapture? It means um, if you're relaxing about end times because every tribe, tongue, and nation has not heard the gospel, don't relax. That is not a stipulation or a condition for the rapture. It could happen any moment. Um, and the gospel program simply continues. I, I, I hope we get some sort of view to find out how in a world devoid of one single Christian the gospel begins to spread at, at such a huge rate. Um, obviously from Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, one of the big ways we know is that God's going to set apart 144,000 saved Jews. Um, young men, young unmarried men who do nothing but spread the gospel. So that's going to be, uh, as, as one of my mentors early in my faith said, 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams roaming the earth um, telling people the gospel. So uh, that, that'll be a great time. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. It means that a person in a non-glorified body ultimately can't enter into the eternal state. But I, I want to be clear about this. Um, the surviving, the, the believing survivors of the tribulation who enter the millennial kingdom are still subject to death. However, um, you recall Isaiah sixty-five twenty. our main proof for this, no more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days. So first of all, infant mortality is gone. Uh, it's completely, uh, every infant lives, there's, there's total health because Messiah is on the earth. Or an old man who does, does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. It seems to imply that the only people who will die, though, during the millennial kingdom are the unsaved. Those who have refused to come to faith, it's possible that the saved will be given long life and then a resurrection body at some point, perhaps at the very end of the millennium. The Bible doesn't address that. Um, do, we, do we have a point of reference for saying, uh, yeah, somebody could live to be a thousand? Of course we do. We have the Old Testament before the flood. This was normal. Men living to be seven, eight, nine hundred years old. Um, it, it, can you imagine what Methuselah must think about us when we're 80 and barely crawling to the grave? 
he must say, man, I, I still had pimples when I was 80. You know, I, I, was, I hadn't even left home yet. You know, my, I didn't drive till I was 180. Um, so that's, that's normal. That level of long life is normal. Why did Noah know how to build an ark with, with tools that had no electricity or anything like that? Because he had 500 years to learn. He had 500 years of understanding uh, engineering. Can you imagine the knowledge you can acquire over that time? So, so this is not abnormal. This is normal. Um, somebody living to be 70 or 80, that's abnormal. That's, that's terrible. That's the result of sin. You have the nature and purpose of the tribulation, excluding the church. I, I really think it's a little bit egocentric to think that all of God's program is always about the church. We're part of his program. Um, I think it's egocentric to call Israel in the Old Testament the church. That's, that's, it, it wasn't the church. It was a nation. We're not a nation. We are a people, and there's a big difference. The church is a group saved in one era of God's redemptive program. It's, it's an important group. Admittedly, we have the best deal so far, right? Um, so far, because we're the first people of God in all of history to all individually be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But we don't have the best deal yet to come. The best deal yet to come is when we're living in resurrected, glorified bodies, right? And that's in another era. The nature of the tribulation focuses on Israel. Daniel 9, the prophecy of the tribulation is about Israel. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, the tribulation is called Jacob's distress, Israel's distress. And there's some purposes for this, a couple of them. Um, the, the first one is that the preparation of Israel's conversion to Christ is a big part of the tribulation. To break them down, so to speak, until um, they are uh, looking for the Lord. Deuteronomy four twenty nine. from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart, with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Did you hear that? That is God in Deuteronomy 4, before Israel has even crossed the Jordan, before they've even uh, had their conquest, before they've lived for hundreds of years, before they rebelled, Taken off into exile, brought back in with only about 50,000 of them, eventually rebel again by, um, by uh, uh, murdering their king, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're disciplined again in AD 70, the nation utterly destroyed, finally brought back together in the late 1940s, um, not as God's nation, but as a nation proving that God can bring them together. All that history has passed 3,500 years ago. God promised in the latter days there will be a great tribulation and after that you'll come back to me. Woo! That's phenomenal. That God is perfectly consistent. So that's the first purpose for Israel. Second purpose um, is for the, uh, of the great tribulation is to judge an unbelieving world. The, the, the judgment that makes it very, very clear. And by the way, there will be no mystery as to what's happening. Revelation 3.10 says that the tribulation is to test the unbelieving world, um, that there will be a call to repentance and that many will repent. But what I said a second ago, you need to be very clear about this. The world will not be going, you know, gee whiz, I wonder what's happening here. I wonder why hailstones are falling to the earth. I wonder why all this is happening. Revelation 6 says that the great and the small, kings and normal people, will wish for the mountains and rocks to fall on them because of the wrath of the Lamb of God. 
they know, they all know what's happening. Um, and yet they will rebel. Uh, when people are in hell someday, it will not be because of ignorance. It will be because they willfully rebelled against a God that they knew and that, that had been revealed to them. There's a willful rebellion there. You have the expectation of the church. Our expectation is imminent, meaning that we're expecting the coming of Christ. We're expecting to meet Christ. We're not given expectation of a tribulation period. Now, I want to be really clear about this. Are we promised an escape from wrath? Yes. Are we promised an escape from persecution and suffering? No. Don't mix the two. Don't don't put them together. They're not the same thing. Um, we don't escape persecution. We don't escape suffering, but we do escape wrath. Why is that so important? We escape the wrath of God because the wrath of God was poured upon Christ. And if I'm here and I'm walking along and I get hit with a hundred pound hailstone, that is the judgment of God. Then the cross was meaningless, right? And this is another topic for another day. But, but um, I, I think I can show from the book of Revelation that... The tribulation saints, they will be dying by the thousands and the millions at the hands of Antichrist. But I don't believe a single one of them will be killed by anything God is doing on the earth. Um, If they are, it doesn't matter. You know, if God wants to kill me, I'm happy with that. That would be great. 100 pound hailstone, I'm going to stand under it because I want to go to heaven. Right. But we don't don't conflate uh, to conflate means to take two things and make them into one. You don't conflate wrath and persecution and suffering. They're two different things. So what is our attitude here? Well, we eagerly await the coming of the Savior. That's, that's what we're looking for. 1 Corinthians 1.7, Titus 2.13, Philippians 3.20. We're, we're looking straight to Christ. How many times in Scripture are we commanded to watch for signs that the Great Tribulation is about to be here? Zero. We're never told to do that. We're never commanded to watch for signs about the Great Tribulation. We live our lives in light of the any moment return of the Lord, not in light of the Great Tribulation judgments. And this is why, you know, Christians, if you're, if you're post-tribulational and you think that you're going to maybe live through the Tribulation, this is when you see people stocking up guns and food and, and building walls around their houses. And, and that's going to be ridiculous when you're going to heaven going, oh, my wall, goodbye. You know, it's, there's no point. There's no point in doing that. How many times does the New Testament teach us to prepare spiritually for the Great Tribulation? Zero. You would think that if it's that big of a deal, the judgment of God falling on the earth, you would think you get at least one verse saying, get ready. Not one. There's not one. It's, and it's, it's a wonderful thing to be that consistent in Scripture. We're to be prepared for persecution, to stand up for the Lord, to stand up for what's right, but never the, the wrath of God. We're never taught to get ready to endure the wrath of God on earth, ever. And by the way, what is, uh, what, what is God's pattern throughout Scripture? Um, did he tell Noah to buy some water wings because he's going to be swimming for a long time? No, he provided an ark. Um, he provided for Lot and his family to, to leave Sodom and Gomorrah to get out. Uh, he provided for Rahab to escape Jericho. That always has been his pattern, that he takes the believers out, then judgment comes. So he's very consistent with that. And then you have, as part of our uh, defense here, the Thessalonians' disturbance. 
their their worry, their angst, actually proves a pre-tribulational rapture. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 and 3, Paul noted that the Thessalonian church had been shaken, they'd been disturbed because they'd been led to believe that they were currently in the day of the Lord. They were in the middle of the tribulation period. That's what they thought. That's why they were disturbed. And you know what? Christians dying left and right, I don't, I don't blame them for that. They had three whole months of teaching under the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine trying to figure out eschatology after a few sermons? It wasn't possible. But here's the deal. If Paul taught a post-tribulational rapture, that Christ is coming after the, the tribulation, do you think the Thessalonian church would be disturbed and anxious? No, they'd be excited. They'd be counting down the days. Christ is about to return. But the fact that they were disturbed means they were taught a rapture prior to the day of the Lord. In other words, they were fearful that they missed it. They were fearful that, that Christ has come and he's taken all the true believers away. Why are we still here? We love the Lord. That was their anxiety. It shows that Paul taught a pre-tribulational rapture. Again, if it's post-trib, they're excited. They're counting down the days. You know, things got bad about five years ago. A couple more years, Christ is returning. So the fact that they were anxious, and while I feel bad for them, it helps us theologically, right? They're all fine now. Um, they are, they're all good. All right. Well, we haven't even really begun the actual tribulation itself. Let's get let's get started with that. What's happening? The term tribulation is a general term to speak of suffering. And based on scripture, it has come to be used specifically and technically of this seven year period of judgment. Then you have the the great tribulation. And I I admit sometimes I mix the two terms up. I'm not going to be here for either one of them. So I don't care one way or another. But technically speaking, the great tribulation speaks of the last half, the last three and a half years. That's when things really get cranked up. Matthew 24, 21 Jesus said, for, for then there will be great tribulation such as not, has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. You have the seal judgments um, beginning the tribulation. The, the second seal judgment, Revelation 6, begins the great tribulation. And so let me explain this. Revelation 6, verse 2, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Um, This is Antichrist coming to power peacefully. See also Daniel chapter 9. Where do we get the peacefully part? He has a bow. There's no arrows. He has power, but he's not exerting that power. This crown is given to him. Um, look, I, even right now, uh, I'll, I'll slip into, into a classic, crazy, chart-making dispensationalist mode just for a moment. Um, even right now, it is not inconceivable to see that one great world leader that would, that would help a lot of things, like, like could solve world hunger, or could finally say, this COVID nonsense is baloney, we're going to get rid of this. And it, one world leader... It is not inconceivable to see that the world would go after this man, right? Well, right now we have, we've been training for decades and decades and decades, even in our country, we've been training to blindly follow people who are wicked, right? I mean, we're just trained to do it. 
And so this is not inconceivable at all that a world leader could come to power um, bringing peace to the Middle East and he is, he is venerated and the world says, finally, somebody has come who makes sense. And what, are, what is Israel going to think? Israel will see him as their Messiah. That's why they'll make a treaty with him. That's why he'll help them set up their temple and get sacrifices going. And they'll even read Ezekiel 40 through 48 and say, this is exactly what what the Bible says will happen. But it's all false. It's all a lie. You have the second seal judgment then. That begins the great tribulation, the second half. Antichrist now brings war. And now, like always happens when somebody gets too much power, they start off saying, this is for the good of the world, the good of the nation, we're we're benevolent, we're going to be kind. But what do people with absolute power always do? They always abuse it and they always end up killing millions every single time. Daniel 9.27, we see a wicked prince who is to come will make a covenant with Israel for one week, literally one set of sevens, uh, seven years. The second half of the covenant, the second half of that time, he'll break the covenant. You have also now this concept of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in and of itself is a huge topic. Um, When we go through the the Millennium Series, I'm going to preach about three sermons just on the day of the Lord. But in broad overview, it's generally used for any special intervention of God in human history, including Old Testament, Zephaniah, uh, the book of Joel, speak of of Old Testament days of the Lord. So it's a general term. Um, In the past, the day of the Lord tended to speak of God's judgments to Israel. Because of their apostasy, that that was their their day of the Lord. Uh, 586 B.C., when Jerusalem is destroyed, that is spoken of as the day of the Lord, a, a final judgment in many ways. But in the future, the day of the Lord gets a little bit more specific. The day of the Lord will be fulfilled when God enters into human history, first to judge the nations and discipline Israel, second to establish the millennial kingdom, and third to eventually remake the heavens and the earth. So that's, that's a general broad overview, and I, I believe I've listed some key scriptures there for you. Have I? Oh, yes, right at the beginning up there. Um, so you have Jeremiah 30, 2 Peter 3, Isaiah 4, Isaiah 19, Isaiah 34, Isaiah 35. But then you get it even more specific. That's, that's the broad view of the day of the Lord. And remember, in the Bible, sometimes a day refers to an era, not Genesis 1, 24-hour days there. It's another discussion. But sometimes the day refers to a period of time. And so generally speaking, it is referring to the entirety of all of end times, events. But then you get more specific, and the future day of the Lord refers to the tribulation period. Broadly, the seven years, more narrowly, the actual uh, three and a half years, and even more narrow than that, the actual coming of the Lord. Now, it's interesting to me, just a little side note here, that Zechariah 14 says that the actual day, the actual 24-hour day that Christ returns will be a day like none other. It won't be like daylight. It won't be like night. Um, And so... You go from an era to a time period of seven years to maybe three and a half years and down to now there is a literal day when Christ returns. There is a literal day when he, he slays all of his enemies. And so it gets more and more specific. 
First Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3 says that it will come like a thief in the night. This speaks of the destruction of the day of the Lord. It's, it's sudden, it's, it's intense, it's uh, beyond comprehension. Uh, the book of Revelation says that there will be blood spread for basically 180 miles and uh, splashed up to the height of a horse's bridle. Um, uh, the book of Ezekiel says that people will be cleaning up after this uh, for months and months. God will send the birds of the air uh, to help clean up all the dead bodies. The day of the Lord is going to be serious. This is no this is no joking thing here. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a unique time of trouble for Israel, and, and it's spoken of as the worst time ever for Jews. So it can't be, by the way, something prior to World War II, obviously, and therefore it must be in the future. And so it hasn't happened yet. It has not happened yet. Then you have the concept of the wrath of God with the Great Tribulation. This is used in the Tribulation specifically in some of the verses I've already mentioned, First Thessalonians 1.10, Revelation 11, and Revelation 6. And I think, I, I think it'd be appropriate to emphasize this. This is not the dark side of God. This is not the bad side of God. This is not the less desirable side of God. And this is hard for us to swallow. But the wrath of God is just as much a part of His goodness as His love, as His grace, as His kindness. And why is that? Because wrath represents what? It represents His justice. That He is perfectly just. And, and, and you might say, wow, that's, this is pretty heavy. 100-pound hailstones, earthquakes, a third of the ocean turning, to, turning uh, terrible. Then eventually the whole of all the waters in the, in the world turning terrible. Well, just how terrible is sin? God's wrath matches the horror of sin. And so there's nothing we can say against that. The wrath of God is more terrible than we can possibly imagine. That's why we run to the cross. You cling to the cross. You, you if necessary, as it were, have splinters in your arms hanging onto the cross um, as we suffer for the Lord. But the, the wrath of God... You can't underestimate it with unbelievers. And that's why in the church it is so, so horrible and such a disservice to try to couch becoming a Christian as making Jesus your friend. That's nice. Yes, Jesus is my friend, but he is my savior and he would have been my judge. And so, you know, Jesus, the the gentle one who died on the cross, is also the one throwing hailstones to the earth. He is also the one coming and slaying millions with a word. He is the angel of the Lord who who slew 185,000 in one word in the Old Testament. So we don't underestimate Christ. Don't underestimate, underestimate the wrath of God. There should be uh, hearts filled with terror and absolute horror if you're not in Christ. And so, whenever you have the opportunity to speak to an unbeliever, you have to present both sides of the gospel. You present the wrath of God first, then you present the love and the grace of God second. Right? So, we want to be very clear about that. And as you read about the, the, if, as you read the book of Revelation, it's a very evangelistic book. I, I've had unbelievers read it, and, they, and they've come back to me and said, that thing's terrifying. It's meant to be. It is meant to be. The, the lesson of the book of Revelation is don't be there. Don't be there when it's happening. And then you have, of course, a major Old Testament passage regarding the Great Tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. 
It relates to this time period to Israel. The, the Great Tribulation is very Israel-centric. It identifies the seven years, and it divides into two, three-and-a-half-year periods. And that corresponds perfectly with Revelation 12, 14, Revelation 11, 2, Revelation 13, 5, 11, 3, 12, 6. They all speak of the division into two halves. And so that is, that's reiterated over and over again in Scripture. Well, we're going to run out of time here shortly, and I... I hate to end our time talking about Antichrist, so we won't do that today. But next time, we'll, we're going to look at the key personalities in the tribulation. We're going to look at salvation in the tribulation, because I, I, I think that's a, a tremendous hope. Um, and we'll, we'll do a special topic also on salvation in the tribulation. The, the special topic is, can those who receive the mark of the beast get saved? I'll leave you with that, and we'll try to answer that next time. Let's pray together, and we'll go on to our next part. Thank you, Father, for this just kind of introductory moments here for our Lord's Day gathering, Lord. Now our hearts turn with even more intensity and more wonder and more humility toward looking at the cross, looking at Christ. As we gather all together, Lord, from all over our campus now, coming together in our, in our uh, sanctuary, Lord, to sing your praises, I pray that we would come with humble hearts, we would come with hearts of awe and fear and wonder that we have a God who is so mighty and just that he rightly punishes sin in a way that, that we can't even fathom. We read the book of Revelation and it is terrifying. And yet this same God has reached down throughout the, through eternity to come to us in the form of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, and because of that, we may join Him in glory. And so we are in awe of that. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for providing for us to never taste your wrath once. But the Lord Jesus Christ in some mysterious way we cannot possibly fathom, bore the wrath of God for eternities of wrath for every person who would believe on Him. And so we thank You and praise You. May our worship reflect our delight and our thankfulness for Christ and for the cross. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.